Welcome to the 24-week lecture series by Dr. Avraham Giliotti, Dreams, Visions, and Near-Death Experiences Compared to the End-Time Prophecy of Isaiah. This is Lecture 4, The Mission of God's End-Time Servant. In our third session, we discuss other predictions or prophecies about the Lord's end-time servant. And just this past week, I was on Jews News, which is a, a blog site, and there was this rabbi, and he was quoting the very same scriptures that I was quoting to prove that Jesus is not the Messiah, from their point of view, but that the servant is this Messiah, the ones that they are expecting, the temporal Messiah, the one who builds a temple in Jerusalem, gathers the tribes of Israel, and restores the political kingdom of God on the earth. Gathering the house of Israel in preparation for the coming of Jehovah. And as I mentioned before, Jews have never made the connection that their own Lord Jehovah is, the, is their Messiah. I show that in my books from literary evidence. Hopefully one of these days, that'll also reach them. Then what are they going to say? They'll have no more <laughs> explanations. All right, so let's get into what Isaiah says about the servant, who this person is. As we mentioned before, in 1 Nephi 20 and 21, when Nephi starts quoting Isaiah, when he can't basically say any more that he wants to say, those two chapters both mention the servant. And he prefaces 1 Nephi 21, as you saw, with the pastors who are not fulfilling their stewardships toward the house of Israel. And that is what we saw in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel that in the context of the shepherds and pastors of the flock not doing their job, that's the arena or the context in which the servant appears. But there's more to it than that. We also mentioned that the servant's coming is going to be a test. And I think I mentioned that Brigham Young said that the Gentiles would be just as mistaken about Jesus' second coming as the Jews were about his first coming because the Jews were not expecting a spiritual Messiah. They got one. We are expecting the spiritual Messiah's second coming and we're going to get a temple Messiah first. There's no one is expecting. And this is the way the Lord does it. He hides his, his actions from those who haven't searched the scriptures. But if you know the scriptures well, including these ones we'll discuss today from Isaiah, you know, you can't draw any other conclusion. The fact that there are so many misinterpretations or precepts of men out there means that people really haven't done their job of searching. They haven't kept Jesus' commandment that they ought to search. And he says himself, Hear me, O Isles, listen, you distant peoples. Jehovah called me before I was in the belly. Before I was in my mother's womb, he mentioned me by name. Now this harks back to the idea of premortal covenants and missions that we agree to perform when we come to the earth, which all the 144,000, and pretty well everybody, more or less, has some kind of calling or some kind of advancement to make in this mortality, some kind of mission to perform. He says, He's made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He's made me into a polished arrow in his quiver he kept me secret. So until the time that he arrives, the Lord has been keeping him secret for his purpose of springing the surprise, these, these new things, as Isaiah calls it, upon his people to weed out the sheep from the goats or the, the, the wise from the foolish or the wheat from the tares. Now, his mission also is universal from the get-go. You see that here. His mission is to isles and distant peoples. 
his mission in the book of Isaiah is to restore the house of Israel, which by definition in the book of Mormon and in Isaiah itself, defines the great and marvelous work. The Lord's work is that of the restoration, his people prior to his coming. And there is somebody who has to do that. It doesn't happen by itself or under the current paradigm. Attention all who thirst. This is from Isaiah 55 now. We're giving a few quick overviews. Isaiah is speaking about the servant. Who is he? Attention all who thirst. Come for water. You have no money. Come and buy food that you may eat. Come buy wine and milk with no money at no cost. Why do you spend money on what is not bread, your labor and what does not satisfy? Hear me well. Eat what is good and your soul shall enjoy abundance. Now, there's another scripture that talks about, in Isaiah, about leaving the hungry soul empty and depriving the thirsty soul of drink, meaning that the current, or at that time, of the servants arising, the current shepherds, as we also saw before from the other prophets, are not supplying, are not nurturing the sheep. And so there's something missing. This person, he is the one chosen of the Lord to provide that. There are things, scriptures such as the one Jesus quotes in 3 Nephi 21 and I believe 3 Nephi 16 also, where the servant, from, quoting from Isaiah 52, which we'll get to, when he, when he preaches, kings shut their mouths uh, because they hadn't heard things that he preaches. And they consider things that they never heard before because we're not getting it now. That's the reason. Now also, eating what is good, good is a synonym of covenant or covenant keeping or covenant blessings. And abundance, enough to eat, is a covenant blessing. So it seems to be that at the time we're coming under covenant curses, here is somebody who is bringing about, who is able to supply us with covenant blessings. In spite of the collective guilt that rests upon God's people, there is a redeeming side to it, and that's the servant coming to provide an alternative. Give ear and come unto me, that, and pay heed that your souls may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Now, this is the covenant of life that your souls may live. And in Isaiah's uh, literary structure, Isaiah's seven-part structure, it is juxtaposed with a covenant with death. So on the one hand, God's people are subscribing to a covenant with death because they're relying on their own counsels and schemes. And on the other hand, this person comes along and offers them a covenant of life. So those, in other words, who accept the servant or subscribe to to what the servant has to say, who is sent of God, the Lord will make provision for them and the Lord will provide a way of escape from the destructions that are coming upon those who subscribe to the covenant with death. See, I have appointed him as a witness to the nations. You look up the word appoint, it's a key word in Isaiah, it's a commission of the servant, and you can look it up in all its instances in the book of Isaiah, it always goes back to the same person, that servant. A witness to the nations. In other words, his mission is universal, as I mentioned from the get-go, because the house of Israel is scattered among the nations, and his job is to rally them to become a new people of God, called Zion. A prince and lawgiver of the peoples. So he's kind of like an Isaiah. He's kind of like a Moses, a lawgiver. He's also kind of like a David. In fact, Isaiah uses all those different types and shadows of different heroes of Israel's history to describe him as a composite of all of these other heroes because he does things that all the other heroes only do individually or one aspect of it. So he brings together all these different types or personas from the past and says the servant is going to do all those things. He's going to be a Moses, a David, a, 
and Abraham and, and Isaiah and so forth. Now addressing him, the Lord says, you will summon a nation that you did not know. The verb to know, if you look it up too, is a covenant term that means you're keeping your covenants with the emperor, or a vassal is keeping his covenants with the emperor. It's kind of like Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. It's part of a covenant relationship. The foolish virgins, he says, I didn't know you, or you didn't know me. You didn't have that kind of covenant relationship that, in which all the terms were fulfilled, so you don't qualify. So a nation that, that you did not know means that a people with whom he had no covenant relationship, now he's going to summon them. In Isaiah, those are God's people on the Jacob or Israel level, and he brings them up to a Zion or Jerusalem level, and from there to an elect level, a son, servant, or daughter, handmaiden level. So that's his job. A nation that did not know you will hasten to you. Because once they respond to his preaching, they'll know what to do, and he gathers them together. He's the end-time Enoch that gathers a people of God, a nation, as Enoch did when he was commissioned by the Lord to go and preach to seven nations who had fallen into wickedness and abominations, and he brings that out of them a people of God. Because of Jehovah your God, the Holy One who gloriously endows you. Now, he's gloriously endowed at a certain point when he goes into his ascent phase, and that doesn't happen until he goes through his descent phase first, and we're going to discuss that. And uh, once he passes the test and pays the price of his people's deliverance, as Hezekiah did, which, whom we discussed previously, then the Lord endows him gloriously. And in fact, he becomes a translated being, as we will see. And then, of course, no power on earth can stop him, although they tried in the beginning to do so. His own people do that. Now from chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. Another instance of the servant coming. Comfort and give solace to my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Announce to her that she has served her term, that her guilt has been expiated. This is what the seraph or the angel declared to Isaiah when the Lord appeared to him in chapter 6, which is chronologically the first chapter in the book of Isaiah and called him as a prophet to his people and declared his sins and iniquities expiated. As I mentioned, sin and iniquities are different things. Sin is something you can be forgiven of through Christ's atonement, but iniquity are generational things, dysfunctional patterns, and they have to be expiated. There are covenant curses that continue beyond the forgiveness of sins. As it says, the iniquities of the fathers and the heads of the children to the third and fourth generation. There are things that are inherited or sometimes we cause them ourselves by our sins and, and our wrong choices. But there comes a time when God's people have served her term. I think I mentioned to you the birth pangs of the Messiah, which is a condition that God's people, for example, suffered in Egypt when they were in bondage to the Egyptians, and they were pleading with the Lord for deliverance, and he sends Moses. And so her serving her term, she comes full term, and then the Lord says, enough, and he sends the deliverer. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The Lord's hand in the book of Isaiah, as there are two, uh, in this case would be the king of Assyria or the king of Babylon, the same person, who oppresses and takes God's people captive. Or Babylon itself takes people captive and oppresses them. So she suffers that in the process, kind of like 
Alma, the elders, the converts from the people of uh, King Noah, they went to the land of, of Helam and settled there, and they had been forgiven of their transgressions at the waters of Mormon. They had covenant with the Lord to bear each other's burdens and everything else, but they were still surfing covenant curse, bondage to the Lamanites until the Lord said, enough. Not only had they then been forgiven of their sins, but they also had expiated their iniquities so that those people who came down to Zarahemla were a purified and sanctified people and they became the nucleus of the church in Zarahemla. So this is a process the Lord takes his people through. A voice calls out, well, a voice in the book of Isaiah, there are also two voices as there are two hands. The right hand is the Lord's servant, the left hand who delivers God's people, and the left hand is the king of Assyria who punishes God's people and smites them. And the Lord uses him as an instrument for destroying the wicked. So there are also two voices. One is the voice of the Lord's servant who personifies God's voice. He's kind of like God's mouthpiece to his people. The other is the king of Assyria, the Antichrist figure or the arch tyrant who rallies an alliance of evil nations against God's people in the end time. So this is the good voice. A voice calls out, in the desert prepare the way for Jehovah, in the wilderness pave a straight highway for our God, because he's coming. Jehovah is coming. Now, of course, Matthew applies this to John the Baptist, and that's perfectly fine. But remembering that Isaiah in its entirety is an end time scenario, this more fully and properly applies to God's servant, who is God's voice in the end time, who is the forerunner as John the Baptist was for Jesus' second coming this time, which is the same as the coming of Jehovah in the Old Testament. Every ravine must be raised up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground must become level and rough terrain a plain because everything right now is unequal. And some are very wealthy, some are very poor, some have great power and some have no power at all to help themselves. And there must be equal ground created uh, before the Lord can come. He's not going to come to a people who are divided by classes and by wealth and so forth. For the glory of the Lord of Jehovah shall be revealed and all flesh see it at once. By his mouth Jehovah has spoken it. His mouth too, there are two mouths, the servant and the king of Assyria. And so the servant, speaking in the name of the Lord, says this is what's going to happen and so it will happen. Whatever the Lord says will happen. Now we go to 44, chapter 44. Thus says Jehovah, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am Jehovah, the maker of all things, who alone suspends the heavens, who himself gives form to the earth. Now, you'll notice in these parts of Isaiah in the 40s, whenever he starts talking about himself as the creator of the universe, it's a polemic because he's prefacing what he's going to say about the servant. So when he starts talking about the servant, then you know that it's the maker of heaven and earth who appointed him and who calls him. He lends that person his own authority, so to speak. He, he puts his strength behind the servant. So why does he do that? Well, the answer is because some are saying, oh no, you, you don't belong, you're, you're nothing. Where do you come from? You don't, you don't fit our paradigm, you know. So they persecute him because they don't know their own scriptures or because they're so into their own paradigm that they can't see beyond it. Their eyes are glazed, so they cannot see, as Isaiah says. And then he goes on to say, who knows the predictions of imposters, 
who makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men about and makes nonsense of their knowledge. Because right now, the wise and the, the prudent, or the wise and the, the learned, you can see that that's in, in, those are in a synonymous parallel. So they are the imposters, they are the diviners that he's going to make fools of. Because their knowledge is a little knowledge. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing, as I mentioned. And he's going to overturn their knowledge, the knowledge of the learned, the experts, the ones who should know, the professors of religion. Let's spell it out, just like Joseph Smith's time. Because what happened in his day is a type and shadow of our day as well. And Isaiah sees that. Remember, this is the time of the end. This is not the time of Joseph Smith. But what happened in Joseph Smith's day could serve as a type of this time as well. Who fulfills the words of his servant. That is going to be the difference between this servant and other servants that are out there that are claiming to be servants of God. Because when he predicts things, it happens. And when they predict things, it does not happen. Isaiah has fun with them. I, I'm not quoting those scriptures, but Isaiah really has fun with them. He's a very humorous guy. And I think the Lord is humorous too. Who fulfills the word of his servant, accomplishes the aims of his messengers. And what is that? What is his aim? What's he going to predict? Who says of Jerusalem, it shall be re-inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be rebuilt, their ruins I will restore. You mean... You're going to build the temple in Jerusalem and the old city and all that in this day and age with all the Muslims breathing down your neck? And what are they going to do? They're going to combine against you from all over and you're going to do it anyway? Yeah. That's what he says he's going to do and he's going to do it. And then the Lord, you know, he makes his moves too. They have their moves and the Lord makes his moves. Their ruins I will restore. The rebuilding of restoration of the ruins in Isaiah is a big theme. It is the ancient ruins, the ruins of the house of Israel, the places that they occupied in their homeland and also in their lands of exile. They're all going to be rebuilt. And the ruins that happen in the end time, they will be rebuilt, some of them anyway. Who says to the deep become dry, I'm drying up your currents. Who and what does that remind you of? Except the exodus of Israel coming out of Egypt. So it puts you in mind of Moses who is also called the Lord's servant. And indeed, Moses is a major type, perhaps the major type of God's servant. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He will do whatever I will. Now remember, Cyrus didn't appear on the scene until you know, more than a century and a half after Isaiah. So what is Cyrus doing here? Cyrus is a major point of contention among liberal scholars who say, well, Isaiah could not possibly have seen the time of Cyrus. Otherwise, he would have been smarter than we are. And nobody is smarter than the scholars are, the liberal scholars. So that's impossible. So there has to be a second Isaiah who lived in the time of Cyrus who basically documented things that were going on. Excuse me? So if Isaiah could see the end from the beginning right into the end time, then he couldn't see the time of Cyrus? In fact, Isaiah is not even talking about the, a pure historical Cyrus. You look carefully. He's combining two types. The idea of a Moses, who's called the Lord's servant and shepherd. And Cyrus was a Persian monarch. He was never a shepherd of God's people. With the type of Cyrus. Whenever a person is mentioned by name as Cyrus is, it indicates that he set a precedent that Isaiah uses as a type 
a type or a model or a pattern for something that happens in the end time. So what Cyrus did anciently, in other words, becomes a precedent for something in the end time. What is that? Well, Cyrus decreed that the Jews who were taken captive into Babylon, since he now has taken over the Babylonian Empire 70 years after the Jews went into, into captivity, he allows them to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. That had never happened before. Solomon had built the temple, but it had never been rebuilt. So Cyrus becomes the great type of the servants rebuilding the temple, the end-time temple in Jerusalem. He will say of Jerusalem that it must be rebuilt, its temple foundations relayed. Now the prophet Joseph Smith also said that. And in fact, he mentioned specifically that the mosque would have to be moved out of the way. It's in the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. You can read it there. So, in other words, Isaiah is giving us a person who's not Cyrus and he's not Moses. He's a composite figure. He's both a Moses and a Cyrus. He does what Cyrus did and he does what Moses did. In fact, Moses is called a shepherd in the context of the deep becoming dry in this paragraph from Isaiah 63. When it, then his people recall the days of Moses of old, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? There's the word link, shepherd. Where is he who put into him his Holy Spirit, who made his glorious arm proceed at the right hand of Moses? Moses is mentioned because he set a precedent for that. Who divided the waters before them, making an everlasting name for himself when he led them through the deep. The deep is another word link to chapter 44. Are you beginning to see how word links act? Isaiah's whole book is a set of word links. There are many others that we're, not, that we're just ignoring right now. Here we go, the servant's descent phase. So those are some of the things that the servant is going to do. And now we're going to discuss from Isaiah the things that the servant has to endure before he succeeds finally. Why does he have to endure all those things? Well, we've spoken about it. A vassal is a savior of his people, a proxy savior, for their temporal salvation, as Jesus was a proxy savior for his people's spiritual salvation. We're talking about physical deliverance, physical protection, like Moses delivering Israel out of Egypt, or King Hezekiah delivering his people from the Assyrians. But Hezekiah paid a price, and Moses paid a price. Chapter 50, My Lord Jehovah has endowed me with a learned tongue, that I may know how to preach to those going weary a word to wake them up. Well, those who go weary in chapter 40 are the Jacob-Israel category of God's people. They're just common believers in the God of Israel, but they are kind of wishy-washy. They're not yet on the Zion-Jerusalem level, which means that they have received a remission of their sins. And beyond that, they're not yet on an exalted level where they become proxy savers themselves to others. Morning by morning he wakens my ear to hear as at study. My Lord Jehovah has opened my ear, and I rebel not nor back away. I offer my back to smiters, my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I hid not my face from insult and spitting. So right off the bat, as soon as he starts, he's getting opposition. Well, some say, well, this is Jesus. Oh, really? <laughs> all these persons are all part of an end-time scenario. It's not the time of Christ where he's... The entire book of Isaiah is an end-time scenario, as I mentioned. According to Isaiah's seven-part literary structure and other synchronous structures, uh, Christ also suffered these things because all Messianic individuals do, but the Lord is speaking here specifically about a servant. All these servant passages in the book of Isaiah connect to word links and other general themes. 
Because my Lord Jehovah helps me, I shall not be disgraced. We discussed in the other prophets how Jehovah and the Lord's servant are two different people. Remember that? Jehovah says, I will be their God and my servant David will be a prince over them. They can't both be the same person. So he's getting opposition and yet he's, he's weathering the opposition, so to speak. He's allowing it to happen. He's not going to back away from God or rebel. I have set my face like flint, knowing I shall not be confounded. He who vindicates me is near. Who has the dispute with me? Let us face one another. Who will bring charges against me? Let him confront me with them. Because what do enemies do? They often go behind your back, right? And drum up you know, opposition against him. But will they actually face him in a confrontation? No, because they know they're going to lose the, lose the uh, debate or the, the uh, confrontation. See, my Lord Jehovah sustains me. Who then will incriminate me? All such shall wear out like a garment. The moth shall consume them. That is a common curse to be devoured by insects or parasites. Who among you fears the Lord? Or Jehovah. And he's the voice of his servant. Who, though he walk in the dark and have no light, trusts in the name of Jehovah and relies on his God. Because the Lord has called his servants so they should pay heed to him. Yeah, but what if he comes from an unexpected quarter? Well, didn't the Lord come from an unexpected quarter? Didn't Joseph Smith? Didn't King David? Didn't Moses? Aren't those a pattern for the end time? What's with that? But you are light as a fire as all of you, the ones he's addressing that are giving him a hard time, who illuminate with mere sparks, like the wise and the learned, who publish papers so then get tenure at the university. Do you think the Lord is going to use those people? to bring forth truth or do something really important? Have they paid the price for that knowledge? For real knowledge? No, so he doesn't use them. So they illuminate with mere sparks. So he says, Walk then by the lights, by the light of your fires, and by the sparks you have kindled. This shall you have from my hand, the left hand. You shall lie down in agony. Because when the destructions come, they're going to overtake you. 49. More opposition. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I had thought, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and to no purpose. Yet my cause rested with Jehovah, my recompense with my God. I'm still going to keep doing what he asked me to do, even though I'm not getting anywhere, he's saying to himself. But there comes a time when the Lord turns it around, as I mentioned. For now, Jehovah has said, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Remember, chapter 49, he formed him from the womb. To be his servant, to restore Jacob to him, Israel having been gathered to him. Now this is a bit of an anomaly because who's been gathering thus far? Well, we have. Ephraim has, right? And, and that's, that has a purpose. The purpose being that since Ephraim is the birthright tribe, he has a responsibility, as we mentioned last time, toward the other members of the house of Israel. So out of Ephraim are going to come those who assist the servant to gather the other tribes of Israel and to nurture them, to be a savior to them, as Joseph was a savior to his brethren in Egypt. For I won honor in the eyes of Jehovah when my God became my strength. Have you ever been without strength and finally, or you just feel like a zero, a nothing, and you're in the depths of nothingness, and you call upon the Lord, and his spirit comes upon you, and then you know, he strengthens you or he gives you a dream or a vision or some kind of manifestation that just totally reverses your situation and you 
Well, this is going to be that, but more so because he's going to be a person who, whom the Lord translates. He said, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore those preserved of Israel. So his job is to gather the tribes. That's not the job of Jesus. All that is done before Jesus comes so that a people can be prepared to receive him. A people raised up from this Jacob-Israel level from who are weary and who are, you know, whose lives are not all righteous at this point. To raise them up to people as it says in DNC 77, of the mission of the 144,000, to bring as many as they can to the church of the firstborn, to God's elect, to just men made perfect. So this is his job. It's a preparatory job for the coming of the Lord. And to restore those preserved of Israel, I will also appoint you to be a light to the nations that my salvation may be to the end of the earth. Did Israel's exile anciently and dispersion among all the nations of the world have a redeeming side to it? And the answer is yes. How? Because now, with the assimilation of Israel's lineages among all the nations of the world, all the nations of the earth could have claim upon being who? House of Israel. You know, not fully ethnic, but nevertheless some lineage, because the heathen nations, if they're pure heathen, they have no claim upon God's covenant that he made with Israel. So Israel's dispersion among the nations of the world, the Lord turns to good. Because now all the nations of the world can also have claim upon being, at least in part, of the house of Israel. So he's appointed as a light to the nations that his salvation may extend to the end of the earth. To anybody, anybody out there is now going to have a chance to come in to the Lord's covenant. What a beautiful thing the Lord does. He turns, he turns our mistakes to, to good, actually. He foresees the end from the beginning. So now the servant is appointed as a light. There's the word appoint again. Look up the word appoint in all its instances. You see it's always identifying the same individual. So now he begins to personify this light. Well, he's the Lord's mouth, or mouthpiece. He's the, Lord. he's the voice. He's the Lord's right hand. He's also a light. Light is a, is, a, is a creation motif. And on the other hand, you have the king of Assyria, the Antichrist, and he personifies darkness in the book of Isaiah. So you have the opposite. Two individuals, one personifies God's light, the other personifies darkness. That my salvation may be to the end of the earth, because the Lord personifies salvation. He comes, it's salvation who's coming. And the Lord's servant is heralding his coming, heralding the coming of salvation. So it's, it's a personal thing. Coming unto Christ is coming unto salvation. The name Jesus, the noun, salvation, Yeshua. Thus says Jehovah, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who is despised as a person, the servant, who is abhorred by his nation, his own people abhor him and despise him, as the Jews did Jesus, as Saul did David, as the Christians did Joseph Smith. It's part of the pattern. A servant or a mere servant to those in authority. Kings shall rise up when they see you, princes shall prostrate themselves, because Jehovah keeps faith with you, because the Holy One of Israel has chosen you. Well, when the Lord reverses his circumstances and he pays the price of his people's deliverance, and he goes into his ascent phase, he is reborn to a higher spiritual level, to a translated level now, then people are going to sit up and take notice. This is the one they persecuted, and now look at him. This is the one they marred, we'll see that in a moment. And now look at him. And who are these kings and princes? 
Look up the word kings in the book of Isaiah, and you'll see that these are the kings and queens of the Gentiles who helped nurture the house of Israel and helped bring them back from exile once the servant starts his mission. They are not political kings and queens. They couldn't care a hoot about the house of Israel. They're spiritual kings and queens. They perform a spiritual role as King Hezekiah did, who was a political king, but he performed a spiritual role as a proxy savior. Now we go into the servant's ascent phase, more properly, and there's a bit of a paradoxical situation here because it's not easy. He doesn't just easily come into power, so to speak, or into his own. This opposition that he receives has to play itself out because on the one hand, it helps purify and sanctify him and it helps him to pay the price of his people's deliverance because he has, to, he has to answer as a vassal to his emperor for the disloyalties of his people to the emperor in order, to obtain, in order to obtain their physical protection. And on the other, you have those in positions now, the shepherds that we saw earlier in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and in Isaiah 49, Nephi's version, who are going to be replaced by him. They're the ones causing the opposition. Thus said my Lord Jehovah of hosts, go and see that steward, Shebna. That steward, Shebna, is a type of the servant whom the Lord calls to replace. Overseer of the palace. Shebna, this little historical situation in Isaiah's day is used by Isaiah as a type and shadow of what the servant is going to experience. Say to him, what are you up to? Who do you think you are that you've hewn yourself a tomb here like those who hewed their sepulchres on high, carving out graves for themselves in the rock? Well, he has grandiose notions about himself. And so he's going to be replaced. Lord can't use somebody like that. Whatever it is, whatever, you know, it happens in the end time, it's, it's only a type and shadow. It doesn't have to be, you know, exactly as it, uh, as it occurs historically. Jehovah will hurl you away as an athlete hurls a missile. He'll make you soar like a dart. He will bind you tightly about and send you spinning like a top into open country. There shall you die in your inglorious conveyance. There shall be disgrace to your master's house. I will thrust you out of office. You will you'll be expelled from your post. And this is more of an idea of what happens here. In that day, I will commission my servant Eliakim. Now, the word servant, of course, ties in with the Lord's end-time servant. It's a word link. And Eliakim, like Moses and, and Cyrus and the others, is a type of the servant also. I will commission my servant or appoint my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and bind your girdle on him. I will appoint, so these are priesthood garments. I will appoint him your jurisdiction and he will be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Now the word father is a covenant term that means proxy savior. Like the kings and queens of the Gentiles will be fathers to the house of Israel. Or as we mentioned last time, like Helaman was a father to his sons, the tripling warriors. It's a, it's a technical term meaning a proxy savior. I will invest him with the keys of the house of David. It's Eliakim. When he opens, none shall shut. When he shuts, none shall open. So he is given the sealing power. I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. Illusions of temple endowment. Now, a nail is the same word as peg. So sometimes, you know, when you have a house and you pound in a nail or a hook in the wall and you hang things on it. And so everything that hangs on it is depending on what? On that nail, right? So that it can be sustained. And he will be 
a nail in a sure place because there are other nails that are not in a sure place. And he will be a throne of glory to the house of his father. Upon him, of course, take the word throne and glory and follow those through and you'll also end up with the servant. Upon him shall be hung to the house of his father. So he has his own proxy savior and that would be Jehovah. Upon him shall be hung all the glory of his father's house. And what is that? His descendants and posterity. So he is a proxy savior of his father's posterity and descendants, so to speak. Does that make sense? Of the lineage of David, for sure, but of his, fa of his father's children, of heavenly father's children, of Christ's sons and daughters, his descendants and posterity, including all the lesser vessels from ordinary bowls to the most common containers. Because vessels is the metaphor for what? People, or descendants, or uh, posterity. From ordinary bowls to the most common... So, mention always is made of the, the lesser ones, the poor and the needy. They always seem to be singled out for being part of the scene of deliverance in God's end-time scenario. These are the ones he'll have most impact upon. In that day, says Jehovah, the nail that was fastened in a sure place shall be removed. It shall be dislodged and fall, and the burden hanging on it cut off. Jehovah has spoken it. So there is another nail, and that was Shebna, who loses his position. He's replaced by Eliakim, now whom the Lord endows and whom he empowers with the stealing power. Now, the word fall in the book of Isaiah and other scriptures always denotes Babylon. Babylon falls, or the evil fall. And cut off is another one of those terms. It's a single verb in Hebrew. Look up, cut off, and fall. And you'll see that those are the wicked of God's people who are cut off from being God's people when they make bad choices. The Lord has spoken it. When he says that at the end, you know, it's always a decree. It's always to, to be taken very seriously because it will happen. And this is from Matthew 24 in the New Testament where Jesus says basically the same thing as Isaiah said. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord has made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. Verily I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. So there again you have a prediction of the Lord, of the servant. But if that evil servant, that's the other one, Shebna or whoever, it is in the end time, there's an evil servant, shall say in his heart, my Lord delays his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants and eat and drink with the drunken. And of course, drunkenness is the theme of the prophets, the false prophets in the book of Isaiah. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day he isn't looking for him, in an hour he's not aware of, and shall cut him asunder and appoint his portion with the hypocrites, where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there again, that servant too is cut off. Now this also happened in the Old Testament when David replaced Saul. Saul was called as king. He didn't measure up, so David replaces him. So this is a pattern for the end time. It's how the servant comes to, to office or is empowered of God. He replaces an existing servant who's not doing his job. More on Isaiah 49. Thus says Jehovah, at a favorable time I've answered you, in the day of salvation I've come to your aid. The day of salvation is the Lord's coming. It's called the day of 
judgment upon the earth, it's a day of destruction of the wicked and deliverance of the righteous. And at a certain point in time, there's a great reversal of circumstances that happens beginning with the servant. And once that scene is set in motion, then everything follows like domino is falling. I have created you and appointed you. Okay, there we have the creation motif. In Isaiah, creation is recreation from the beginning. The earth is created or recreated from a previous, what it was previously. Eventually, there'll be new heavens. They are recreated. The Lord uh, recreates his people. He creates the Jacob Israel category. He creates the Zion Jerusalem category. He creates the son servant category, and he creates the seraph category. And all of these are recreations. As people ascend the spiritual ladder, they are recreated closer to God's image and likeness. It's a rebirth. So he's paid the price for this. He's gone through his descent phase. He's proven faithful and loyal to the Lord through these hardships, through trials and afflictions. He individually and also God's righteous people do that. And now he's recreated. There is the word appoint again. To be a covenant of the people. He is a covenant? Yes. Now he personifies God's covenant to his people. What does that mean? It means that from now on, for God's people to come into the covenant, they're going to have to go through him. He's a mediator of God's covenant as Moses was in the Sinai wilderness. He's following the type of Moses in this case. And what is he to do? Because with every ascent to the next spiritual level always comes a commission, a new commission to do something. You never go to the next spiritual level just to have fun and enjoy yourself. You are given a new commission which if you fulfill, then you go to the next level beyond that. And we've already seen some of it. But here is more specific, to restore the land and reapportion the desolate estates. Who did that? Who was the type for that in the Old Testament? Joshua, yeah. When Israel conquered the promised land, then Joshua appointed the 12 tribes lands of inheritance. And so he's also a new Joshua, the servant is. To say to the captives, come forth, and to those in darkness, show yourselves. Who did that? Moses released the captives in Egypt, right? They shall feed along the way and find pasture in all barren heights, as they did in the Sinai wilderness, when they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Only this time it's going to be quite a bit shorter than 40 years, hopefully, anyway. They shall not hunger or thirst, as they have up till now, both of the word of God and if they were in a wicked state, food-wise, nor be smitten by the heat wave or the sun, like the wicked are going to be smitten by the heat wave and the sun. You'll see that. All of these are word links. He who has mercy on them will guide them. And for them he has no mercy and they have no guidance. They are left in confusion to run around like chicken without heads on. He will lead them by springs of water because others will have no water or their waters will be polluted. All my mountain ranges I will appoint as roads. My highway shall be on high. See, these coming from afar, these from the northwest, and these from the land of Sinim, or Asia, China. That was 49. So part of his mission then is to bring back all these exiles from lands of their dispersion, where they were scattered in a cloudy and dark day, as we read earlier. I think that was in Ezekiel. 51. This gets more into his empowerment. Awake, arise. Now those terms, if you look them up, 
They apply to Zion and Jerusalem, awaking and arising to a new spiritual level. He now awakes and arises to a new spiritual level. And because he's the arm of the Lord, he personifies God's arm that's going to be revealed or bared. The day of power when the Lord starts to intervene in the earth. The dead in the book of Isaiah are raised. The Lord commands them to awake and arise. So this is a resurrection imagery, so to speak. But if he's translated, that is also like awakening or rising. And maybe, he's, maybe he succumbs to death even. Uh, it doesn't say. Certainly, he is, as we'll see in a moment, he suffers horribly. Awake or rise, clothe yourself with power or arm of Jehovah. Bestir yourself as in ancient times, as in generations of old. Was it not you who carved up Rahab, which is a name, symbolic name of Egypt? You who slew the dragon, which is a metaphor for the pharaoh, king of Egypt, as it also is in the book of Ezekiel. You can look those up. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the mighty deep, and made of ocean depths a way by which the redeemed might pass? Well, that happened in the time of Moses when Israel came through the Red Sea. But who went before them doing that? The angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord went before them and did that. Remember, the angel of the Lord came and stopped between the Egyptians and the Israelites so one could come not come near the other. The Egyptians could not harm them. So this person seems to have this role as a pre-mortal angel, harking back to the exodus out of Egypt, which now he's going to repeat in the flesh. That make sense? Indeed, there it is. Let the ransom of the Lord return. Let them come singing to Zion, their heads crowned with everlasting joy. Let them obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing flee away. So as a result of his empowerment, the exodus of God's people starts to happen. Without that empowerment, it can't happen. Without the Lord empowering Moses, it couldn't happen. And Moses was a translated being. Translated beings have power over the elements to divide the sea, to move mountains, to raise the dead, and so forth like Elijah or Enoch. 42, verses 1 through 7. My servant whom I sustain, my chosen one in whom I delight, him I have endowed with my spirit, he will dispense justice to the nations or to the Gentiles. Why? Because there's no justice out there at that point. Nowhere. He will not shout or raise his voice to make himself heard in public. He's not standing in Piccadilly Square, you know, shouting. Even a bruised reed he will not break, or a dim wick he will not snuff out. What's this about the bruised reed and dim wick? Well, those are metaphors, of course, for very weak people who are in a state of brokenness. They need healing. And he's not going to say, well, you don't count, because there are forces now in the world who want to get rid of those people. You saw that with Hitler, right? What did he do? One of the first things he did, he got rid of all the disabled and the mentally ill and all that. He wanted no part of those people. He didn't see that they had a purpose in life. Well, it also means those spiritually, of course, are spiritually needing help, they need healing. He will perform the work of justice and the cause of truth. The truth of God is where it's at in the end time scenario. If you can figure out the truth of God, you will be good, if you live it. If you don't, you won't. It is those who think they have the truth that are going to be the, the biggest problem in the end time scenario. They assume they know, like Nephi said. They think they know of themselves. 
There's way more than they perceive that's there in the scriptures, in the prophecies. Neither shall he himself grow dim or be bruised. Who does that remind you of? Moses. Remember his eye was not dim and his strength was not abated. He just departed. He was still in good health. Kind of like Alma the Younger. He just left. Didn't say where he went, but he was still in good shape. Until he has brought about justice in the earth, the isles await his law. His mission is a universal mission. He's a lawgiver like Moses. Thus is Jehovah God who frames and suspends the heavens, who gives form to the earth and its creatures, the breath of life to the people upon it, spirit to those who walk on it. I, Jehovah, have rightfully called you. Remember when I said when he starts calling himself, referring to himself as the creator of heaven and earth, lending his servant his authority. It's forestalling those who say, oh, no, you don't have any authority. Uh, yes, he does. Here it is. I, Jehovah, have rightfully called you, or call you in righteousness, and will grasp you by the hand. What's grasping by the hand all about? Well, it's an endowment of power. It's when he's empowered and appointed to his new mission or commission. Where do we know that from? Well, from the temple endowment, of course. I've created you on this higher spiritual level now, the, the seraph level, this translated level, and appointed you to be a covenant for the people. There it is again. Just in case we didn't get it from chapter 49, it's saying it here again. A light to the nations. To open eyes of the blind, to free captives from confinement, from prison those who sit in darkness. Where? Who? The spirit prison? No. That's, the Lord. that's what the Lord does when he dies and goes to the spirit prison. He does it also. But that's not an end time scenario. This is a very physical scenario here. Captives from confinement are captives to the king of Assyria in the book of Isaiah. It's a word link. And darkness is a metaphor or a pseudonym of the king of Assyria who personifies darkness in the book of Isaiah. He's the light that lights up their darkness. You're getting the message, you know, it's, it's all there. It just keeps reinforcing. It's a prophecy within a prophecy within a prophecy if you'll see it. That's why Isaiah's words are great, truly great. Okay, as forerunner to Jehovah's coming, the servant is required to do a number of other things. We read in the book of Revelation about the angel from the east who empowers the 144,000, basically, with the Father's name on their foreheads. I think I might have mentioned that anything to do with the Father is, is a universal or international mission. They go to all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, like the servant does. I've raised up one from the north who calls on my name. That is an Abraham type. He calls upon the name of the Lord. And we'll tie that in to another part of this chapter in a minute. We shall come from the direction of sunrise... He shall come upon dignitaries as on mud, tread them as clay like a putter. So this is a time of God's judgment. Once he's empowered, I was taught in rabbinic school that he suffers from his enemies, but once the Lord empowers him, then his enemies suffer at his hands. Then the tables are turned upon his enemies. So it is here. Who announces beforehand so we would know, declared at the head of time that we might say he was right? Or actually the word is tzaddik, meaning correct or right or righteousness that we might say righteousness and actually righteousness is one of the person's this person's names because he personifies righteousness which we'll see in just a moment so he's the one who announced it he's the one who declares it ahead of time is what it's saying between the lines 
but of the others who are supposedly the Lord's shepherds, indeed not one could foretell it, not one naked known, no one has heard from you any prophetic utterance, but to Zion he shall be its harbinger, I will appoint him as a herald of good tidings to Jerusalem. There's a couple of word links. The Lord appoints him and he's a herald of good tidings. Keep that in mind. And then in 46, I summon a bird of prey from the east, from the distant land, the man who performs my counsel. Now remember that in relation to Palestine, where is east? Who are we? We're America and America is east in relation to Palestine. It's the rising of the sun. And rabbis say that he's going to come from America. The man who performs my counsel because others are not performing his counsel. He's a bird of prey because he comes upon dignitaries as on mud, etc., and makes short work of all you know, hypocrites and false claimers. What I have spoken I bring to pass. Remember when the Lord speaks? This is another word link. Jehovah has spoken it. Remember that? What I have spoken I bring to pass. What I have planned I do. Well, it doesn't have to happen if we repent, right? That's what some people say. I mean, how often do they, do they say that? In fact, they quote Noah. Well, the people of Nineveh repented, so the Lord didn't destroy them. Uh, yes, he did, but not in Jonas's time. It was several hundred years later or several years later that he did destroy Nineveh. And the book of Tobit, or Tobias, says that it was the fulfillment of Jonas' prophecy of Nineveh. Whatever the Lord says, he does. At some point, it will be fulfilled. What I have planned, I do, because there are those who are resisting the Lord's plan all through Isaiah. It's like in the Book of Mormon, which talks about fighting against Zion. That comes from Isaiah 2, in chapter 29. But the Book of Mormon really amplifies that idea that of those people who are fighting against Zion. And who are they? Well, the great and abominable church and all the other wicked of the earth, but also those who apostatize. They also end up fighting against Zion. Hear me, you stubborn-hearted who are far from righteousness. I have brought near my righteousness. It is not now far off. My salvation shall no longer be delayed. I will grant deliverance in Zion and to Israel my glory. Now, have you noticed some synonymous ideas here? He comes from a distant land, right? Verse 1 or verse 11. And I have brought near my righteousness. What has the Lord spoken and what is he going to bring to pass? Well, his salvation, of course, and deliverance in Zion. So there's a parallel thing going on here. And in a moment we'll see that this person actually personifies righteousness. The Lord bringing near his righteousness, because they're not righteous, is the coming of the servant. He's bringing near his servant. He's bringing the bird of prey or the servant from the east to his people. Here's another empowerment verse. Therefore thus is my Lord Jehovah from Isaiah 28. It's when those who are subscribing to the covenant with death, then the Lord is going to do something new. It's speaking out the prophets who are not prophesying or they are drunk, not prophesying. And so he's going to lay in Zion a stone and also the seers, chapter 28, so a stone signifies a seer. It's also a metaphor or an alias of a seer. A keystone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. They who believe it will not do rashly. So it's a matter of belief 
whether you're going to believe in this person or not. Kind of like 3 Nephi 21, which we may get to, which says, when the Lord's servant brings forth the words of Christ, there are those who believe it and those who don't believe it. We'll talk about that. I will make justice the measure because he's to restore justice and righteousness the weight because he personifies righteousness. In this day and age, when a lot that passes for righteousness is not really righteousness, but self-righteousness, he's going to provide a true paradigm of righteousness. What it really means by the Lord's definition to be righteous. He's going to provide that so he comes at a time when that is needed. When we have a different paradigm of righteousness. And he's going to provide a true paradigm of it. A hail shall sweep away your false refuge, and the waters flood the hiding place. Because those who are trusting in the covenant of death are going to be overrun by it. Chapter 52. Remember how we saw that he was a herald of good tidings to Jerusalem? He's also a messenger. That's another connecting term. And peace is a synonym of salvation, as we see here. He announces peace, brings tidings of good, and heralds salvation. Peace, good, and salvation are all in, in a synonymous parallel form here. So that you can say, well, if he pays the price of our peace in Isaiah 53, which is Jehovah, then he is paying the price of our salvation. If he does us good, or eat what is good, then we partake of his salvation. Get the idea? And mountains being a metaphor for nations or kingdom is in the book of Isaiah. So his coming upon the mountains means his preaching to all nations, or to the nations of the world. And we saw that, his mission is to the isles and to the nations. How comely upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger announcing peace, who brings tidings of good, who heralds salvation, saying to Zion, your God reigns. Your God is in charge, and he's coming. He's anticipating, preparing the way for the coming of salvation. Like John the Baptist, or anyone who does so, as Abinadi would say, anyone is, is a herald who follows this pattern can be a messenger of good news. In fact, Zion Jerusalem was commissioned by the Lord to declare good tidings after they passed the test of loyalty to the Lord at a serious siege of Jerusalem. They are commissioned and appointed to herald good tidings also. Verse 8, Hark your watchmen, lift up their voice. We saw before, when we did the bad news day, you know, that there are these bad watchmen. They're not watching, they are just having a good time, basically. Trusting in that everything is fine in Zion. Well, the Lord's answer to those watchmen are these watchmen, the good watchmen, who report what they see and hear. Your watchmen lift up their voice. As one, they cry out for joy. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord returns to Zion. Now voice is also a pseudonym of the servant, so lifting up is also to sustain. They sustain the servant. These watchmen do that. Jehovah has bared or revealed his holy arm in the eyes of all nations, because his mission is universal, that all the ends of the earth may see our God's salvation, may see Jehovah, or Jehovah's coming, preparing the way for him. Break out altogether into song, you ruined places of Jerusalem. Jehovah has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. He's going to do major things now to deliver his people at the coming of the Lord. So the servant's mission, as we saw before, is designed to restore the house of Israel. But they have to come out of Babylon first and be gathered and become a Zion people. 
So his coming, the herald of good tidings and the watchman, their mission results in this exodus out of Babylon. And Isaiah def defines Babylon as all the world in its wicked state, kind of a greater Babylon, on the eve of its destruction, kind of like John the Revelator does. I think who takes his cue from Isaiah, in fact. Turn away, depart. Sometimes it's hard to turn away like Lot's wife from what you always knew, you know? And just leave everything? Just quit? Yes. Like Lehi and his families. Touch nothing to follow as you leave Babylon. Don't bring your little gadgets with you because they won't do any good there. <laughs> Those are gods you can't save, Isaiah says. They will not save you. Come out of her and be pure, you who bear the Lord's vessels. Vessels is there that metaphor that we saw earlier for God's children. So the ones bringing these vessels are the kings and queens of the Gentiles or the watchmen. Those who assist the servant help bring Israel out from dispersion in an exodus design from the four directions of the earth. But you shall not leave in haste to go in flight. It's not going to be in a panic like the rest of the world's got to be in a panic, in a horrible panic. And you can read Isaiah 44 and other chapters. They are in total confusion. Nothing like it before. Jehovah will go before you, the God of Israel behind you. Now we go to chapter 11. So that empowerment, you know, when the servant is empowered, then all this string of events happens. And this is also what happens when the servant is empowered in chapter 11. In that day, the sprig of Jesse, or the root of Jesse, it's a root, a sprig, or a graft. It's grafted into the olive tree, meaning he stands for the natural branches. On the principle of the one and the many, he's actually a graft, or a root, or a sprig that's grafted in, but he also represents all those who are grafted in, namely, all the natural branches of the olive tree. In that day, the sprig of Jesse, who stands for an ensign to the peoples, well, we've already seen that he is, he is the Lord's light. He personifies the Lord's covenant. He's a, we alluded to the fact that he's a mouth and a voice. And here he's an ensign. He's the ensign. He stands for an ensign to the peoples or to the nations. And there are two ensigns in the book of Isaiah. The King James doesn't always translate them the same. King James will translate this word ensign, Hebrew ness, as ensign or standard or banner. But it should be specific because it's a person, it's a keyword. You can look it up all through its instances in the book of Isaiah and get an overview of what the ensign does, or the two ensigns do. The other ensign, the king of Assyria, rallies an alliance of wicked nations against God's people. But this ensign, the Lord's ensign, the servant, he gathers the Lord's people to Zion in an exodus. Do you notice how Isaiah keeps repeating himself in different contexts? He doesn't just say something once. He says a number of times, like domino pieces, that he connects with other events. A few domino pieces here, a few different ones here, a few others here, until you put them all together and do your word searches, connect your word links, you don't get it. You can't proof text. Shall be sought by the nations or the Gentiles, and his rest shall be glorious. His rest or his residence or where he abides. But the rest in other scriptures, is also the presence of the Lord. So it alludes to the idea that he dwells in the presence of the Lord. The Israelites did not come into the Lord's rest, the ones who came out of Egypt, because they rebelled against him in the wilderness. In that day will my Lord again raise his hand, 
or raise his hand the second time, as it's translated in the King James Version, to reclaim the remnant of his people, those who shall be left out of Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shina, Shinar, Hamat, and the islands of the sea. He will raise the ensign to the nations and assemble the exile of Israel. He will gather the scattered of Judah from the four directions of the earth. So this is a mass gathering of all the tribes of Israel, Judah and Israel, the two houses of Israel. It's never happened before. This is his job. It's, it's, the, it's the sprig of Jesse who stands for this ensign. Now notice verses 11 and 12. The Lord raises his hand and the Lord raises the ensign. They're paralleled synonymously. He gathers, in verse 11, he gathers all those people out of Assyria and those nations, the islands of the sea. And in verse 12, he assembles the exile of the scattered of Judah. So those two verses are synonymous verses. You see that? It says the same thing in the next verse as it says in the previous one, more or less, just a different wording. What does that tell you? It means that if you take this synonymously, that the Lord's ensign, the verse 12, is parallel with the Lord's hand, in verse 11. And that is in a synonymous parallel, meaning that if the servant, the sprig of Jesse, is an ensign, then he's also the Lord's hand. The Lord's right hand, in this case, because the Antichrist, or king of Assyria, is the Lord's left hand of punishment. He's also an ensign. And so you have these two ensigns and two hands. These are key words, you have to, they're code names, you have to read into them these other meanings to get the full intent of what he's trying to tell you. And when that happens, when Israel gathers through the instrumentality of the servant, Ephraim's jealousy shall pass away. Ephraim is jealous of Judah because Judah has remained faithful all these years and suffered. And the hostile ones of Judah will be cut off because Judah is hostile to Ephraim. Who do you think you are, you prodigal son? You know, I've been faithful to the... And, and the father says to the other son, all that I have is yours, the faithful son. And here's this prodigal coming to claim his heritage again. And Judah doesn't like that. But at some point, they will be reunited. As David anciently reunited the tribes of Israel, the northern tribes with the southern tribes, so does the servant in the end time. We saw that... In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, remember? There shall no more be two nations, but there shall be one nation in the hand of the Lord. Here is the Lord's hand. Ephraim will not envy Judah, nor Judah resent Ephraim, but they will soup on the Philistine, Palestinian flank toward the west. It's the same word in Hebrew. They will soup on the Philistine flank toward the west, together plunder those in the east. They will take Edom and Moab at hand's reach, and the Ammonites will obey them. So this is a new conquest theme. When God's people are empowered by the Lord's hand, then they conquer their enemies as they did under David, who conquered the Philistines. The Philistines were about to wipe Israel off the map. The Lord raised up David and gathered the tribes of Israel and conquered them. Sound like we're going to have a repeat scenario of that. Well, that's what Isaiah is all about, of course. He predicts new versions of ancient events. That's all he does. This is a new conquest. New wandering in the wilderness, new Passover, new Exodus... You name it. A new rebuilding of the temple. We've seen those things. Now a new conquest of the promised land. And then a new inheritance of the promised land as Joshua. Jehovah will dry up the tongue of the Egyptian sea by his mighty wind. He will extend his hand over the river and smite it into seven streams to provide a way on foot. The terms sea and river are pseudonyms of the king of Assyria borrowed by Isaiah 
from the Baal myth, Ugaritic myth of Baal and Anat, where Baal, the hero god, conquers these false gods, the gods of chaos, whose names are sea and river. So Isaiah uses those terms from mythology to identify the king of Assyria as sea and river, the evil chaotic god of this world, the Antichrist, and smite it into seven streams to provide a way on foot like the Israelites coming out of Egypt because the king of Assyria is holding captive the ten tribes in the north countries. And there shall be a pathway out of Assyria for the remnant of his people who shall be left as there was for Israel when it came up from the land of Egypt. So he's also a new Moses. When he empowers God's people, everything just starts happening. God empowers him, he empowers God's people, then the whole restoration scenario happens in quick succession. Yes, there'll be those who try to stop it. Isaiah says it. And the Lord takes them to task in no uncertain terms. All right, so here's something that he does. Be standing before me, O isles. Come still, you peoples, because his mission is universal. Let them come forward and state their case. Let us stand trial together. Well, you know, Isaiah talks about them in the United Nations, basically, saying this, that, and the other. But have they predicted what the Lord is going to do? Uh, no. They don't know anything about that. So he's going to take them to task. Well, well, what use are you then, he's going to tell them. What's the purpose of your national gatherings and so on? Just chatter or condemn Israel? Be silent before me, O isles, become still you peoples. Let them come forward and state their case. Let us stand trial together, you and me, because they have it in for him when he arises, and now he's going to take them to task, now that he's empowered of God. Who has raised up righteousness from the east? Well, we saw the bird of prey or the person coming from the east. It's the servant, the angel from the east in the book of Revelation. Calling him to the place of his foot. Who has delivered nations to him, toppled their rulers, rendering them as dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow? Well, he's a new Joshua. He leads the armies of Israel in the new conquest. He puts them to flight, passing on unhindered by paths his feet have never trod. He's also a Cyrus. Cyrus conquered the entire Babylonian empire, not always by military force. So that's why you have the composite of Cyrus and others in the book of Isaiah that depict or typify the servant's role in the end time. So this servant is a major figure that's coming. Who is at work accomplishing this for ordaining dynasties? Well, who ordained a dynasty before? The Lord did when he called David. King David's dynasty, or King David's descendants, became a dynasty. And they continue throughout all generations. Abraham became a dynasty, so to speak. And so the servant becomes a dynasty as well. And so I would dare say all the 144,000 become dynasties in their own right. Anybody on that spiritual level. I, Jehovah, first and last am he... Why mention first and last? Because the one who started the whole thing is also going to finish it. He is the same God acting at the end of time who acted in the beginning of time. The isles look on in fear. The ends of the earth are in trembling. They flock together and come to one another's aid, saying each to his fellow, Courage, man. You know, we can stand this. But do they? No. They all fall down together, as you will see. Here's another Cyrus type from Isaiah 45. Thus says Jehovah to his anointed, to Cyrus whom I grasp by the right hand. 
Well, of course, Cyrus the Persian was never the Lord's anointed. Who did that title belong to? The king of Israel. Saul was the Lord's anointed, and David would not lift up his hand against the Lord's anointed. Even though Samuel had anointed David to be the prophet, of his, to, to be the king of Israel in place of Saul, as long as Saul was still in power, David gave him utmost reverence and respect. That is why the Lord loved David. One of the reasons. He was a man after the Lord's own heart. So here, Isaiah is making a composite figure again, as he did with Moses and Cyrus before. Now he's making a composite figure to denote the servant of Cyrus and King David, or the Davidic king, a Davidic king, whom I grasp by the right hand. Well, he grasped his servant by the right hand, because it's the same person. In my book, The Literary Message of Isaiah, which goes into all of these analysis, on page 138, you'll see the whole page is in the new edition. I'm not sure it's in the old edition. You'll see a figure there of 30 alternating instances of chaos in creation, chaos in creation, that have synonymous parallels. They go on for 15 different, from A, B, C, all the way to O. And the O is the centerpiece and goes all the back, way back to A again. And you'll see that the servant Isaiah 42 is in parallel with the Cyrus figure later on. In all of these instances of this person, it's always the same person. Isaiah is telling you that through the literary devices. You can't say, oh, this is Cyrus and that's so-and-so, and just take things out of context. The book of Isaiah is an integrated entity. You can't escape that. You can't put your own spin on it. You'll get it wrong. You have to pay the price for, for learning its message. And once you do, you'll, you'll have that awe that the Jews have of, of the Word of God and the great respect because it teaches you things. You don't tell it what it is. To subdue nations before him as Cyrus did anciently, to ungird the loins of rulers, opening doors ahead of him, letting no gates remain shut. Well, as I mentioned before, when a person is mentioned by name, he establishes a certain precedent that becomes a type of the servant or of something else in the end time. So what is the second mention of Cyrus here a precedent of that, he's, that is a type? The first type was that he rebuilds the temple or gives the Jews permission to rebuild the temple. We shall see. Verse 2, I will go before you and level all obstacles. I will break in pieces brazen doors and cut through iron bars. I will give you hidden treasures and secret hordes of wealth. Those are going to come forth in the end time to support his work. They have been kept in reserve for that day. That you may know that it is I, Jehovah, the God of Israel, who calls you by name. Now, holding or grasping by the right hand and calling by name is what an emperor does to the vassal king when he adopts him unconditionally as his son. And their relationship changes from the master-servant to the father-son category. When the covenant of the vassal with the emperor turns from being conditional, based upon the vassal king's you know, loyalty to the emperor, to unconditional, where he's been proven to be loyal, there's nothing more to be said. From now on, you're my son, blood relative or not. And that's what this signifies grasping by the right hand and calling by name. And look that up in its different instances in Isaiah. You'll see that also God's people are grasped by the hand and called by name on their spiritual level. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by name. I named you when yet you knew me not. So th 
the thing that for which Cyrus set up a second precedent was to conquer Babylon, to conquer all these nations, to put down all these authorities so that he can free up the Lord's people to return to Jerusalem, the Jews in Babylon, could return to Jerusalem for the sake of Israel, my servant, he does that. That's the second precedent. That had never happened before. So Cyrus, again, becomes a type of the Lord's servant in that respect, the Lord's end-time servant. But the Lord's end-time servant, unlike Cyrus the Persian, is also the Lord's anointed, the king of Israel. And the Lord's anointed, anointed simply means Messiah or anointed one. So the Lord's anointed is the Lord's Messiah. It's the same word in Hebrew. Mashiach. Mashiach means anointed one from the word Mashiach, to anoint. I am Jehovah, there is none other. Apart from me there is no God. I girded you up when yet you knew me not. That men from, from where the sun rises to where it sets may know that without me there is nothing. That I am Jehovah, that there is none other. Again, lending that person his authority. I fashion light and form darkness. I occasion peace and cause calamity. Word links. So he creates both the servant who is the light and the darkness, which is the Antichrist. He occasions peace and causes calamity. The blessing and the curse, salvation and destruction. I, Jehovah, do all these things. Rain down from above, O heavens. Let the skies overflow with righteousness. When the servant does his thing, who personifies righteousness. Let the earth receive it in salvation, blossom. Let righteousness spring up forth with. I, Jehovah, create it, or him. He creates righteousness. He recreates righteousness, or the servant. Chapter 41, verse 2 where it says he calls righteousness from the east. It's the same person. 48. This is what Nephi quoted, along with 49, in 1 Nephi 20 and 21. Hear me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I have called. The Jacob-Israel category is the first line of people to whom the servant is sent. And he brings them up, as I mentioned earlier, ultimately to an elect level through his ministry. Because many of them are already there, so to speak, but just... Don't have a few things to take care of. I am he who was at the first. I am he who is at the last. I'm going to be there now as I was before with Moses and with King David and with others. It was my hand that founded the earth, my right hand that stretched out the heavens. When I call them, they arise at once. Well, there he is again saying he's the creator and he's going to lend this person his authority as creator. All of you assemble and hear who among you foretold these things it is him Jehovah loves who shall perform his will in Babylon. His arm, the servant, shall be against the Chaldeans or the citizens of Babylon, the wicked inhabitants of the world. So he's a prophet. He foretells these things and the Lord fulfills the words of his servant. As we saw earlier, I myself have spoken it and also called him. I have brought him and I will prosper his way. You can't argue with the Lord. There are those who are going to argue horribly with the servant saying this is not of God. And guess what? It is of God. He lends it his full authority. Now the servant starts speaking. I have come near me and hear this. I have not made predictions in secret. that they are coming to pass, I have been present. Now my Lord Jehovah has sent me. His spirit is in me. Now we go to Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. Notice the context. Notice the context of this entire passage. That's quoted in, in Handel's Messiah, by the way. But notice the context. It's an end-time context. When the ten tribes went captive into Assyria, they went through the highway through Zebulun, the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. They went along the sea route north into Mesopotamia. 
when the ten tribes come back from the north countries, they're going to come back the same way. So this time it's not going to be gloomy. They're going to come back from the north along this highway. Of course, it could also be in America because the whole thing shifts to a world scenario now from being a, a very small scenario in the ancient Near East in that day. It shall not be gloomy to those who have been in anguish for her, because chapter 8 ends with gloom and doom. It shall not be gloomy to those who have been in anguish for her. In the past he humbled the lands of Zebedee and Naphtali, but at the last he will exalt the sea route by Jordan and Galilee of the nations. So what is Galilee of the nations a type for, or a metaphor for? I think you could figure that one out. The people walking in darkness, or they've been subject to the king of Assyria, ten tribes, who comes from the land of Assyria, have seen a bright light. Who's the light? The servant is. On the inhabitants of the land of the shadow of death, death is one of the Antichrist's names, the king of Assyria's names, has the light dawned. Because the servant's mission is to the ten tribes also, who are captive in the north countries. And he is, his job is to release the captives there, so they can come in this exodus to Zion. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy, because when they come in the exodus, their joy is increased. They rejoice at your presence as men rejoice at harvest time or as men are joyous when they divide spoil. Because Isaiah predicts that God's people are going to despoil their enemies and spoil them. When they are united and empowered by the servant, there is a new conquest that happens and they reconquer even the lands of Assyria occupied by the king of Assyria. They conquer them. They conquer the entire earth, in fact. For the Lord, after Assyria has conquered the entire earth, they reconquer the earth for the Lord from the Assyrians. The same as Cyrus conquered the Babylonian Empire, so they are going to reconquer it back under this Joshua, or the servant of the end time. Harvest time denotes that they are back in the promised land and received inheritances and have planted and are getting harvests already. So they are now in a joyful state in their promised land, released from, from captivity, from the land of the shadow of death, where they are about to be wiped out. Because anybody who opposed the king of Assyria was you know, subject to death under his new world order. You have smashed the yoke that burdened them, the staff of submission, the rod of those who subjected them, as in the day of Midian's defeat, or the day of Midian. Now, look up the word Midian, and it appears in chapter 10 in the context of God's people defeating, or of a latter-day Gideon, defeating the Assyrians. And Isaiah used imagery to depict that. Now, Gideon did not defeat the Assyrians. Gideon defeated the Midianites. 300 men wiped out an army of some 120 or 140,000 Midianites and Amalekites and others. So that was a horrendous and, and, and miraculous battle. And it's going to repeat itself in the end time when the servant is empowered. And he's now going to be a new Gideon. So this is another type of the Lord's servant. But when you look up the word yoke and staff and rod of those who subject and submit, cause submission like the Egyptians did to the Israelites by putting them into hard bondage, then you see that those are metaphors or aliases of the king of Assyria. He's the yoke that burdens the Lord's people with, of the ten tribes. He's the staff that smites them and the rod and so forth.
And now he's going to be broken as he is in chapter 14, which talks about him as that person. And all boots used in battle and tunics rolled in blood have become fuel for bonfires. So this is the great celebration now that happens after this war to end all wars. When the Assyrians who have conquered the world are finally defeated, miraculously almost, as they were anciently in the time of Gideon. And then we see this passage that's quoted in the Handel's Messiah as referring to Christ. But it's in the context of what we just read. It's an end-time scenario. It happens on the heels of that conquest of the Assyrians. For to us a child is born, a son appointed. Now the word son, designation of a vassal, is the same as the word servant as we read earlier in the chapters around the 40s, 42 and 49, the Lord calls him his servant. But after he passes his tests, the trials, and so forth, and he's experienced that descent phase that pays the price of his people's physical deliverance, then he's adopted on the seraph level as the Lord's son, unconditionally. So it's talking about the Lord's servant in an end-time context. Handel didn't get it right. That's something that came down from the Dark Ages, and we just adopted it. And besides, historically, this was the enthronement of King Hezekiah who came to power in Isaiah's day. So everything has a historical type or, or precedent. And this is a record of Hezekiah's being empowered after that great victory when the Lord destroyed the Assyrian host that lay siege to Jerusalem, 185,000 men. Then Israel held a great celebration and they celebrated King Hezekiah's role as a, as a king and a protector of his people, as a proxy savior. Historically, that's what this event was about, the enthronement of King Hezekiah, which is a type of the servant's enthronement after the great victory when he reconquers the earth on behalf of the Lord's people, behalf of the Lord from the Assyrians, like Cyrus did. We've just been reading about the conquest. So you can't yank this out of the, all these contexts and these word links. You can't do that. And that's what everybody seems to do and be quite happy doing so. So the real meaning is going right over their heads. And if you tell them any different, they'll get angry with you. You can be sure. That's an understatement. So the son, the child that is born is the same child or male child that's born in chapter 66, which we read. The, male, the woman goes into, into to the birth pangs the birth pangs of the Messiah, she gives birth to the male child and then to a nation of God's children. That's what's happening here. Once a servant is born, so to speak, on the seraph level, because every time we ascend, we are reborn, 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 and recreated on a higher spiritual level. So long as we have kept the terms of the covenant on the level that we're supposed to and fulfilled our commission on that level, then we are recreated on a higher level. So in context, that's what it is about. And besides, the King James horribly mistranslates this part of the verse. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor. Not Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. I mean, it's almost funny if it wasn't a huge mistake. It's Wonderful Counselor. There are four couplets here in the Hebrew. Wonderful Counselor, one mighty in valor. Yeah, it doesn't say the everlasting. It says a father forever, a prince of peace. Look in the book of Abraham, and what are the four things that Abraham aspires to do, to be? The same four things, ending up in a, in a prince of peace. In this respect, it's emulating Abraham because 
there are chapters, the four consecutive events in Abraham's life where he's a wonderful counselor to Lot. When Lot, you know, when there's strife between the shepherds and he says to Lot, you choose the mountains, I'll choose the plain or vice versa. Lot chose poorly and ends up having been thrown out of there when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. He's mighty in valor when he conquers the northern kings, the northern alliance who had taken Lot and, and the kings of the plain captive. He becomes a father forever when finally he gives birth to Isaac and is promised an everlasting posterity. And he becomes a prince of peace when he pleads for the righteous in Sodom. And the Lord, and Book of Abraham directly mentions prince of peace, also a father of many nations and so forth. And then you have in uh, Alma 13 where uh, Melchizedek is also a prince of peace. So Christ, of course, is the prince of peace, but he's way more than that. He's all these things and more. But historically, it relates to Hezekiah, and as an end-time scenario, which the entire book of Isaiah is, it's to do with the servant. That sovereignty may be extended and peace have no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, his rule may be established and upheld by justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. The zeal is another one of the servant's names. Okay, so, of course this happens to Christ. He comes to rule over the entire earth. And all messianic prophecies can be applied to Christ in that sense. But as an end time scenario, it applies to the servant. It also applies to all of the 144,000 who are also all messianic types. They're all messiahs and little Davids, so to speak. A shoot will spring up from the stock of Jesse and a branch of its graft bear fruit. The spirit of Jehovah will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of valor, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Jehovah. This is another messianic prophecy of the servant and also of Christ. But remember, it's talking about the branch from its graft that bears fruit because until the servant comes, the tree is not bearing fruit. You'll have to go to my books to figure out what verse 1 is all about. Because the stem of Jesse, or the stalk of Jesse, is the trunk. It uh, refers to Christ in what scripture is that? DNC 113, isn't it? And then there is a, a rod or a, uh, a shoot or a water sprout who represents the Gentiles. It does not itself bear fruit. And then there's the graft that represents the natural lineages that are grafted back in to the olive tree that does bear fruit. And look up all these words, the spirit of Jehovah rests upon him, because we saw the servant being endowed with the Lord's spirit in chapter 42. And the words wisdom, understanding, counsel, valor, and spirit of knowledge, and fear of the Lord, all those have word links to the Lord's servant in the book of Isaiah. His intuition will be guided by the fear of Jehovah. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor establish proof by what his ears hear. He will judge the poor with righteousness, equity, arbitrate for the lowly in the land. He will smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips slay the wicked. Righteousness will be a band about his waist and faithfulness a girdle around his loins because he personifies those things. And if it's speaking about the Lord, then he also uses his servant and his other servants who personify those things to bring that, those beautiful conditions about. Here's another prediction about the servant. When he is enthroned, it's when the tyrants are overthrown. When oppressors are no more and violence has ceased, when tyrants are destroyed from the earth, then in loving kindness shall a throne be set up in the abode of David, and in faithfulness a judge sit on it who will maintain justice and expedite righteousness. I'm going to continue with two more scriptures which will preclude us from answering questions today, but you can save up your questions for next time.
I'm going to discuss two more scriptures that, that have a bearing on the servant now. This is now Jesus speaking. Jesus is the one person who is permitted, so to speak, to speak about the servant, who can mention him directly. The others are under constraint not to do so. That's why they quote Isaiah to say what they want. When that day shall come, it shall come to pass that kings shall shut their mouths. This is Isaiah 52, 15. For that which had not been told them they shall see, and that which they had not heard they shall consider. That is, when the servant teaches it to them, because that passage is about the servant. When you go to Isaiah 52 and look at the chapter heading in our LDS scriptures, you see that, that the heading says that it refers to Messiah. The servant who is marred refers to Messiah, says the scripture heading, does not refer to Messiah. When you go to the Gospel Doctrine Manual, it says it's Joseph Smith. So who are you to believe? You know, it's neither one. It's an end-time context referring to the servant who has not yet performed that mission. And here Jesus is starting to talk about it, this very explicit thing. For in that day, for my sake, shall the Father work a work which shall be a great and marvelous work among them. That is from Isaiah 29 that he's drawing upon here, that Jesus is, to the Nephites. And the work that is hastened is that work. The work is the restoration, by definition, of the house of Israel, when the natural branches are grafted back into the olive tree. And there shall be among them those who will not believe it. Well, we believe a lot of things that you know, are not in the scriptures, precepts of men, as we saw in our first session together. Although a man shall declare it unto them, but behold, the life of my servant shall be in my hand, therefore they shall not hurt him, although he shall be marred because of them. That's from Isaiah 52, verse 14. Yet I will heal him, for I will show unto them that my wisdom is greater than the cunning of the devil. That is from Isaiah 57, referring to the servant. So Jesus is pulling several scriptures together here to make it easy for understanding, hopefully. And so what is it that they're not going to believe? And what is it that this man is going to declare that is going to be marred because of them? Marring in chapter 52 of Isaiah verse 14 says he's marred beyond human likeness. He doesn't even resemble a human being anymore. That's his descent phase in paying the price of his people's disloyalties to the emperor to obtain their deliverance. He's willing to do that. So he, he emulates Christ very closely, very, very closely, because Christ suffered horrendously, more than anyone could suffer. And he, he's a close second. And there are some who will say, well, I won't even go into it. Tar and feathering Joseph Smith didn't require a miracle of healing. You know, it's, it's just nonsense. The things that people will say just, just to get around what the scripture is actually saying. They'll just invent any old idea that comes into their head just to get off the subject so they won't hear what the truth is because they can't stand it. They can't stand to have their old paradigm changed. But that means they have to change and they won't do it. They're not prepared to do it. So what's going to happen to them? Read Isaiah, what's, what will happen to them. Well, it tells you here, it's the cunning of the devil that's you know at work here against the servant. Jesus says it, I don't. Therefore shall come to pass that whosoever will not believe in my words, who am Jesus Christ, which the Father shall cause him to bring forth unto the Gentiles. Now we are the Gentiles by definition in the Book of Mormon. We who are identified with the Gentiles, we mentioned it before, in the earlier session, Joseph Smith. Now, where are the words of Christ that he's talking about? He's going to bring forth the words of Christ that the Father is going to cause him to bring forth. 
and shall give unto him power that he shall bring them forth unto the Gentiles. It shall be done even as Moses said, they shall be cut off among the people who are of the covenant. So here, you know, if Christ is the one like unto Moses, here Jesus is saying himself, who is the one like unto Moses, that he is also one like unto Moses. Because what happens when those who do not believe the words that, that Moses or one like unto Moses bring forth, they will be cut off among the people. And this is speaking about the servant, not Christ himself. In fact, Jesus mentions both the Father himself as Jesus Christ in the role of Jehovah here, quoting Isaiah as if he were Jehovah. And then his servant is the third person. So you can't say that it's Christ or, and, you know, a surrogate of the Father or something like that. It's very clear here. Three different persons. And it's an end-time scenario because it's quoting Isaiah. And those kings and queens of the Gentiles haven't come along yet. But as we find out by connecting all the dots, that they are the 144,000. They shall be cut off among my people who are of the covenant. Who are the people who are of the covenant? The non-Mormons, the time of Joseph Smith, they were never the people of the covenant. We are. We are the people in Zion, and we read 2 Nephi 28, who are the people of the covenant. And we're going to be cut off if we disbelieve the words of Christ that the servant brings forth from the covenant. We're out of here. Is that what these people imagine who are going to disbelieve the servant? I don't think so. But that's the reality. That's what Jesus himself is predicting here. And my people who are remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles, because it is an end-time scenario, in the midst of them, quoting now Micah, as a lion among the beasts, as a young lion among the, the flocks of sheep, who if he goes through, will tread it down and tear it in pieces, and none can deliver. I mean, how explicit is he? Can you argue with this? I don't think so. So where are the words of Christ? Are they the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon? No. Are they the Book of Mormon? No. Where are they? Here they are. Third Nephi 26. And he did expound all things, Jesus, to the Nephites, even from the beginning until the time that he should come in his glory. Yea, even all things which should come upon the face of the earth, even until the elements should melt with fervent heat, and the earth shall be wrapped together as a scroll, and the heavens and the earth should pass away. Where do we find that? Actually, it's in the book of Isaiah. If we would know the book of Isaiah, we would know what he's telling them. So if we were familiar with what, he's, what the book of Isaiah is saying, what Isaiah is telling us, we would immediately recognize when these words come forth that they are true. Because they're saying the same thing. Isaiah spells out the end from the beginning. And here Jesus does it independently. And even unto the great and last day when all people and all kindreds and all nations and tongues shall stand before God to be judged of their works, whether they be good or whether they be evil, if they be good to the res resurrection of everlasting life, if they be evil to the resurrection of the damnation, being on a parallel, the one with the other. So this book is the Book of Mormon, the small plates of Nephi, which, which is the, the current Book of Mormon. And it's an abridgment of what's on the large plates of Nephi that Nephi talks about that he made after he made the large plates, I think he made the small plates, in that order. And Mormon wrote an abridgment of the Nephite history on the small plates, which is the Book of Mormon. But behold, the plates of Nephi, that is the large plates, do contain the more part of the things which he taught the people. And these things have I written, which are the lesser part of the things which he taught the people, as in Third Nephi. And I've written them to the intent that they may be brought again to this people, that is, to the Nephites, 
or Lehi's descendants, from the Gentiles, from us, according to the words which Jesus has spoken. Because we are the proxy saviors for them. We are the kings and queens of the Gentiles, the spiritual kings and queens. And when they shall have received this, this is the Book of Mormon, which is expedient that they should have first to try their faith, and if it be so that they shall believe these things, the current Book of Mormon, then shall the greater things be made manifest unto them. When? Who? By whom? By the servant, when he brings forth the words of Christ. So some of us, at least, are going to have our faith tried and believe these things and live them so that we can merit the other things coming forth. That's the only basis on which it's going to happen. Some of us, at least, are going to have to measure up so that these other things can happen. But when they happen, then there are going to be those who will not believe them who are going to be cut off. See the picture? It's very explicit. Figure it out if you haven't got it so far. And if it so be that they shall believe these things, then shall the greater things be made manifest unto them. And if it so be that they will not believe these things, then shall the greater things be withheld from them unto their condemnation. And he was about to write all of it, right? To them, and he, the Lord forbade it, saying, I will try the faith of my people. I think, isn't that, isn't that the rest of the passage? We're out of time. Save your questions for next time, and we'll try to answer them. This concludes Lecture 4, The Mission of God's End-Time Servant. Be sure to visit IsaiahExplained.com as well as IsaiahInstitute.com to learn more about Isaiah with Dr. Avraham Giliadi.